0: listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science Shaping the Post-COVID World Series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 8 February 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome, everyone. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this event with Professor John Van Rienen on the theme of Going for Growth. This lecture is part of a series that we've been holding this year to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Centre for Economic Performance, which has been producing cutting edge, groundbreaking policy focused research at the LSE since 1990. Today, John is going to tackle a big question. How can the UK and the world get back to sustainable growth following the COVID-19 pandemic? Pulling together research on the lessons of 30 years of work that he has done and others have done on technology, management, and productivity, John will argue that innovation is the key to revitalizing our economies. Now, John doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'll give a brief one. He is the head of the LSE Programme on Innovation and Diffusion. He also holds the Ronald Coase Chair in Economics at the LSE. And between 2003 and 2016, he was the Director of the Center for Economic Performance, whose birthday we are celebrating today. John, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Today, the UK and the world faces a real challenge of maybe unprecedented scale due to the COVID pandemic. And we have to think about the way in which, as hopefully we kind of rebuild ourselves out of that hole, it's a big hole, and we can do that in a way which can get us back to sustainable and equitable growth. And I think one of the things that has been revealed by the pandemic is the existing weaknesses in both politics and the economy of many countries, including our own. So I'm going to make an argument that our framework should be unashamedly about trying to get back to the right kind of growth, which deals with climate change and also tries to deal with the inequalities we have. And I'm gonna argue that when we think about growth, the two kind of key things are to do with innovation, the generation of new ideas to the world and their diffusion around the world and around the economy. Here's some measures of the challenge that we face. This is the last 12 months or so. This is what's happened to uh, the GDP and the economy. And you can see that there was this enormous fall of about a quarter of the size of the economy in April last year. And although there was some recovery over the summer, you can see as we went into the second and then third lockdown now, also negative impact on GDP. The most recent numbers I saw from the Bank of England a few days ago suggested maybe the overall loss might be about 10%. So this is just the last year. Let's see what this looks like if you look a little more historically. So this looks at the size of the economy, gross domestic product since 1955. So you can see steady growth. Here's the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Now, we thought when this happened, this was the largest maybe hit in terms of the uh, economic damage in my lifetime. But the COVID hit is actually being larger than the global financial crisis. It actually is more serious and much bigger fall than we experienced during the collapse of Lehman's and the event which went around that. And this is the theme that I will keep coming back to, that the size of the economy or GDP or however you measure it is not the most important thing for welfare. Increasing the size of the economy, for example, just by having a bigger population or increasing the amount of hours people worked, is not obviously a desirable thing. So what is desirable is if we can increase GDP per capita or increase GDP per hour work. So productivity, at the simplest, is how you can get more outputs for the same amount of inputs. So the most important input is people, labor hours. A more sophisticated measure also takes into account how many capital inputs get put in. This is sometimes called total factor productivity. But The simplest measure is this labor productivity, like GDP per hour. And that's important because in the long run, Wage growth, people's income growth, um, generally follows productivity growth. Given that, let's look at what's happened to UK labour productivity. So this is since 1979. In the 30 years prior to the global financial crisis, Britain was actually growing above its long-run productivity trend. It was actually, and I'll talk about this all, it's quite a good period of time for productivity. But what's stunning is what happened after the global financial crisis. So there was a fall of productivity and then a recovery, But then since about 2010, 2011, productivity has been almost flat. So here is COVID right at the end. So you can see that productivity took a hit in COVID. But really, the challenge is actually the fact that there's something like a 30% gap between where we would have expected to be based on pre-crisis trends compared to where we actually are today. This is probably the number one a problem, economic problem that Britain faces is why we've had such slow productivity growth over this period of time. Now, the reason that slow productivity growth matters is it influences, I'll show you, pay growth. And I think that one of the main reasons that we have had, not just in Britain, but all over the world, an upsurge of kind of populist anger has been because of slow wage growth, not just slow wage growth, at the top of the distribution, but for the, the median person, the people in the middle of the distribution. What I want to talk about first is to deal with some of the objections to this focus on thinking about growth. So there's at least five objections. The first objection is the one that, well, you know, growth is all very well, but we know it's not really workers who benefit from growth. It's the owners of the capital who benefit. Now, that's a completely legitimate concern. So let's have a look at that. So there's been about a doubling of productivity growth since 1980 and a doubling of workers' compensation since 1980. So, in fact, just as basic economics would argue, productivity growth goes hand in hand with faster worker average compensation growth. Another way of saying this is that the share of the economic pie which has been going to workers has more or less stayed the same over this four-decade period. It's kind of an important thing, I think, because a lot of people uh, assume that that's not the case and that workers' compensation hasn't gone up the same as productivity, but in the UK it has. Now, that's not true of every country. For example, if we look at the United States, there was clearly a gap opened up. Wages partially followed productivity growth. It didn't grow as quickly in the US, whereas it did in the UK. Which leads on to the kind of second uh, objection, which is that faster growth means more inequality. Now, if you think about this, it's probably not likely to be so obvious, because if you look around the world, some countries like the United States have a lot of inequality and are also pretty productive. But other countries like the Nordic countries, like Sweden, Denmark, are also very productive and have very low inequality. So it's kind of unlikely that richer countries or faster growth leads to more inequality. And indeed, there's been a lot of increases of inequality in different countries over the last few decades. And the final consideration is that if you want to have more redistribution, it's much easier to redistribute when the economic pie is growing fast. If you have stagnant kind of productivity growth that we've witnessed in the last 13 years or so, trying to redistribute in the context of a kind of static pie, you're having to take a lot away from some people, whereas if the economy is growing, it's often easier to do redistribution. So for all those reasons, I actually think that there's no reason why faster growth means faster inequality. Really, the problem, especially after the global financial crisis, is that productivity has stagnated and median wages have also stagnated. So there's been an increase of inequality predating the financial crisis. What about the third objection, that growth actually is inevitably bad for the environment? There's three considerations I would say why an emphasis on growth is important. here. First of all, In order to tackle climate change, we're going to need green, clean innovation. We're not going to be able to tackle climate change purely by regulation or purely by trying to increase taxes, a more appropriate measure of growth like net domestic income should include the depletion of natural capital. So there was a a very good report released by my former teacher, Partha Descupta, who really emphasized that when we think about proper measures of growth, we should be taking into account the way that natural resources and biodiversity are being depleted. So a good measure of growth will take that into account quite rightly. And finally, if we think about how the political will to actually enact climate change policies. When times are very tough, people are not going to be focused so much on climate change as, as they would do if we can get sustainable growth. So if we can get good productivity growth, then I think it's actually going to open more political space to actually make some of the tough decisions we need to make in order to deal with climate change. Fourthly is the issue about happiness and well-being. So the question is, we may get growth, but that won't make us any happier. Now, this is, of course, a really important point. It's hard to measure happiness, although we have made improvements in our measurement of it. I think there is a lot of evidence that, in fact, improvements in material well-being do actually help us improving the overall sense of well-being as well. I often appeal to my uh, Aunt Lorraine here, who has told me that although money doesn't buy you happiness, it often makes your misery a lot easier to bear. And I think there's a important grain of truth in that, in the sense that it is the case that people who are in, in greater poverty tend not to be happier. And if you look uh, across countries, there is a relationship between uh, the degree of kind of material well-being here on the x-axis and the degree of life satisfaction on the on the y-axis even in wealthier countries so you can argue about the strength of this relationship but there clearly is some type of relationship I do think that although we should take very seriously the importance of other dimensions of well-being, having improvements of people's material well-being through productivity is part of the overall package of things we need to do to improve overall life satisfaction. There is a fifth objection. This is going to be the subject of the rest of the lecture, which is maybe there's nothing we can actually do to improve the growth rate. And the kind of pessimism about growth is in a way the new normal, I think, in a lot of the kind of media discourse that we have around growth. A lot of the work has strongly shown that there are ways you can influence markets and policies to actually improve the rate of innovation and growth. Exhibit number one in this is actually what's happened to the UK. So it's often not recognized that in the UK, there was a long period of time, something like 100 years where the UK fell behind other countries in terms of its national income per person. But for the 30 years leading up to the global financial crisis, Britain actually managed to reverse that decline. I think that's not unrelated to many of the policies which were kind of introduced under parties of both power in that period. Back in 1870, the US was something like 23% poorer than the UK. France and Germany, they were something like 40% poorer than the UK. Then over the course of the next 100 years or so, these other countries caught up and overtook the UK. So part of that was natural. Britain was the kind of first industrial nation, which gave us some advantages. But not only did these other countries catch up, but they kind of vastly outstripped us. And so the US by uh, the late 1970s was, has a GDP per capita of 43% higher than the UK had and between 11 and 16% in France and Germany. But over the next 30 years, things changed. And on the eve of the global financial crisis, Britain had reduced by a quarter the gap it had with the US and had completely caught up and overtaken a little bit what had happened in France and Germany. And if you look at why those changes happened, I think it's reasonable to think that and there's evidence that these went together with a package of policies which changed the way that the economy works. So broadly speaking, there was a set of you know pro-competition policies which joined the European Union, helped create the single market under Mrs. Sachter and Jacques Delors. There was a strengthening of competition policy, particularly when Gordon Brown was chancellor. There was an opening to foreign investments, uh, reduced government subsidies, reduced attention for national champions. And that openness actually is one of the important things which created new markets, created more competition and actually uh, helped uh, Britain grow. So the set of all these policies, these structural policies and these policies to actually increase the inputs to productivity actually paid some dividend over this time period. So I think that a focus on growth shouldn't be confused with just the obsession with GDP. Proper measurements of it should include human natural capital. We should take a dashboard approach towards thinking about this. So we should certainly think about health and equality. But I think this, this focus on growth really is a, an important and, and very defensible thing to do. Now, where does this growth come from? Well, there are a lot of sources of growth. But the growth is fundamentally a story of, of technical change and improvements of efficiency and innovation. It's not about just more people or more capital. There's actually two parts of that. So one is the kind of, the kind of hard technologies that we think about, but the other is also the way we organize work through the management practice. It's probably easy to convince into the technology matters. So if we think about the kind of history of the industrial revolutions first in England under steam in the late 18th century, then under the incredible second industrial revolution in the late 19th century, we had the innovations of illumination with Edison of automate mobility under the internal combustion engine of the communication of the wireless as a, you know, amazing wave of innovations in the second industrial revolution through to the third industrial revolution under the kind of Moore's law, if you like, the growth of the internet, the growth of digital computers, and maybe through to the kind of fourth industrial revolution that we're living through now, with the era of machine learning and artificial intelligence and huge data sets of robotics, of gene therapy. These innovations are powering the changes that we've seen, but I want to emphasize it's not just about the Hard technologies. Management is also an organization is also an important part of this, whether those are the kind of changes that we saw through Frederick Taylor's scientific management all the way to Alfred Sloan's new form of organizing companies through the modern Toyota lean manufacturing system. And really the story here is that you get these kind of major innovations that I've talked about, but in order to make best use of them for productivity, you often need to make a lot of changes to the way that you work. So, for example, if you look at the innovation of electricity, it took um, many decades before that fed through to productivity because there was a need to change the way that factories worked, to run through the factory system using lighting, running at a high speed for longer periods of the day. So these management changes were really or sometimes called complementary inputs, which enable that technology to actually be used effectively. And I think that may also be true when we think about the long time it takes for computers to have shown up in the productivity statistics and maybe for artificial intelligence too. Another way of thinking of this is that firms can spend huge amounts of money on technology and this can end up having very little effect on productivity unless you actually have good organization and management to use those. So let me just circle back to where I started in terms of the UK productivity puzzle. Regardless of how we got into the mess, the issue is how we get out of it. So, even with the best analysis of the world of how we got here, we have to think about how we, we move forward. And one aspect of this, I think, which is important, is looking at research and development. So, if you look at research and development as a fraction of our, our GDP, From 1981 onwards, you can see that the UK, although at least arrested some of the decline, is now below where most of our comparison are, certainly compared to the East Asian countries like China and South Korea, whose R&D has increased a lot relative to the income, but also well below now Japan, Germany, the US and France. So there is a straight challenge of sufficient resources going into research and development. Some ideas about how we can get out of the problem that we're in. I think there's a kind of a short run and a long run element to it. An important principle is that we need to link these short and long run things together and our policies need to be evidence based. The first principle, obviously, there is a public finance issue. We're spending a lot of money to help protect the economy during the COVID pandemic and there's lots of calls for moving now towards fixing the public finances. I think moving too quickly to cutting spending or increasing taxes would be a really serious mistake. We still have an era of low interest rates. Moving towards premature austerity was, I think, a mistake of what we learned from the global financial crisis. So although we need a plan in order to think about the public finances, we don't need to do this in an accelerated a quick way like I think we mistakenly did at the start of the global financial crisis. We have to think about the balance between protection and reallocation. So at the moment, a lot of the emphasis rightly has been going into protecting jobs and protecting businesses. But as we move into the post COVID era, hopefully with the help of the vaccines, we need to think about this reallocation. We need to think about how we move resources and jobs and activity towards some of the growth areas of the economy. So if we think about this, there are many of the support packages which we have in place both on the job retention scheme, the business support policies, bounce back loan scheme, business interruption schemes are going to have a cliff edge in the spring. So we need to smooth this cliff edge. We need to reduce the support on this as the economy improves, not to do it too quickly in order to avoid going into a more serious recession and to reduce the loss of viable skills in the firms. And we need to own up to the fact that many of these loans are not all going to be paid back. So I welcome the Chancellor's elongating the time period for paying back some of the bounce back loan schemes. But I think actually we're going to need some more serious debt restructuring, which could be a mixture of the government taking debt equity swaps and actually writing off some of these these loans. And I think we also need to combine this with support for startups. So, you know, we have to really think about how we get this reallocation activity into kind of growth activities and new startup activities and not focus just on kind of incumbent firms. How about in the longer run? Well, there's several things that we need here. One important lesson from the Growth Commission is that we need a set of new institutions to mitigate what I sometimes call policy attention deficit disorder, which has been one of the main problems with long run investments in the UK. One of the UK's big problems is that we've been very bad at making long run investments in innovation and human capital. And an investment. So things like a national infrastructure bank are actually going to be very important in order to try and provide complementary finance to help us out of the hole that we're in. Having some of these institutions which have some independence enables them to at least have some protection about the kind of day-to-day political pressures that they're that, that face. We need to have structural policies. There are a serious challenges in our competition policy. We have growth of uh, these kind of superstar, extremely large firms, especially in the kind of digital sphere. We need to think about new types of ways of dealing with reinvigorating competition to prevent a loss of uh, enforcement of antitrust. And we have too much of competition policy as backward looking. Whereas I think in the modern economy, we have to think of a forward looking type of competition policy. So a merger today with a small firm, which looks harmless, maybe be harmful if that firm could have been a future competitor. Think about the Facebook-WhatsApp merger, for example. I think Brexit is going to be a major hangover for the economy. And I think the best way would be to reverse Brexit. But in the absence of that, we should rejoin the single market as countries outside the European Union like Norway have. And we also think of a variety of tax reforms. So, you know, we should be taxing bads like carbon. We should be aiming towards greater transparency, greater neutrality. We should be taxing more heavily inefficient things which don't move like land in order to get the kind of funds that we need. For human capital, the big challenge in the UK is intermediate skills. So Britain's been relatively strong on higher education and elite education. It's much weaker on people who don't go to university. So the real challenge is to build up intermediate skills to apprenticeships. In terms of innovation policies, I mentioned we should think about around what works. In uh, some of my work, I had this what I call the light bulb table, which goes through the portfolio of policies and tries to score them in terms of the quality of the evidence and the kind of cost benefits and the impact of inequality. So I think we need a mixture of different policies, a mixture of direct subsidies to tax policies. One thing that I think is important when we think about innovation policies is binding them together around missions. So the climate change mission is an important mission. And we can think about um, having our set of innovation policies as trying to deal with that problem. I hope I've shown you that we in Britain and around the world face a severe productivity growth problem. It's particularly bad in the UK and obviously uh, hit us since COVID, but it's been there since the global financial crisis. Are these ideas I have politically feasible? Well, events like COVID and Brexit are not welcome, but events which cause major damage can shock society into making radical changes. So I think about the example of World War Two. No one would have wanted World War Two. But out of the ashes of World War Two, a new type of state was born welfare state, an idea that we could actually move towards a better way of living. We built new institutions around the world to do that through openness, through better trade. And I think at this point, we have a lot of cross-party consensus on the need for investment and innovation, the importance of the role of the state in rebuilding the economy. And my view is that we can use this as an opportunity to learn from social scientists over what policies work and do not work and help to go forward form this kind of plan to create sustainable and equitable growth over the next few years and decades so thank you very much
0: so thank you so much for for really challenging us to think differently about growth going forward and how we could have a different kind of growth a better kind of growth but growth nevertheless uh as a key way to improve human welfare over the years ahead